Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 31, Vanity Fair by William Makepeace Thackeray. Gentlemen, this is Vanity Fair. Please remember, Vanity Fair is a very vain, wicked, foolish place, full of all sorts of humbug, falseness and pretension. Not a moral place, certainly, nor a merry one, though very noisy. A world where everyone is striving for what is not worth having. Welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This is a glorified book club, basically, where we record (laughs) our discussion talking about one particular book that we have chosen and whether it deserves whatever sort of reputation it has, whether it be good, bad, or meh. And we'll see what happens with this episode. So I'm Stella. I'm leading us through this particular episode. I chose another whale of a book, even though there's no whales in it. And along for the ride with me is, I believe he's going to be uh, the Mr. Pitt to my Becky. (laughs) I'm wondering if there would be any other better comparisons for you. Uh, You could be the Mr. Stain to my Becky, but he was also a bit of a bit of a poor character or i could just make you the amelia 
to my Becky. Unless I'm the Amelia to your Becky, but it doesn't matter. It's Tom Panneries. Tom Panneries is here. Hi, how are you? I, whatever works for you is fine with me. Were you trying? Were you scratching your head thinking about who are these people? I didn't Partially, read this book. <laughs> no, I read the book. I'm just, I was scratching my head at, at a couple of them. I'm just like, you know, I have notes. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. You know, I it had been a while since I read this. I mm-hmm, feel like. It's been a month, actually. And so when you texted and said, are we still recording? At first I thought, oh, wow, I, I forgot about that. And the second one, I thought, yikes, I really need to do some sort of refresher course on Vanity Fair because mm. I've thought I've forgotten all the details. But luckily, on Amazon Prime, they just created this new version of Vanity Fair uh, for 2019 it's a prime original starring Olivia Cook, and I had wanted to watch it anyways, and I thought this is the perfect time. And it's only seven episodes, and they're like 45 to 47 minutes, so I watched them Saturday, Sunday, Monday, and then I just finished the last episode today. And it's pretty thorough because it was a series. They were able to hit more of the beats than you know the mm-hmm. Vanity Fair movie in 2004 Reese Witherspoon was able to do. So I I'm feel like I'm caught up and I remember my details now. So here we are. <laughs> Speaking of um, TV shows, uh, I was watching um, Antiques Roadshow last night, <gasps> as I do every Monday night. Oh, well, well. oh God, I love me some Roadshow. <laughs> but um, so between the two episodes, our local PBS station, or one of them, I can't remember which one I was watching, um, has been running via Masterpiece Theater uh, a, I think it's a BBC production of Les Miserables. Oh. Uh, multi-episode. Yes, and I think yes, the fi- yes. The finale, I believe, is this coming Sunday night. But I, that suggests to me that if you have the PBS streaming app, um, which is a good app for streaming stuff. Um, if you're if you're like Frontline, American Experience, Nova, like any of those sorts of shows, Masterpiece Theater being another one, um, it might be on there or it might be coming to there. So um, if you if you missed it when it aired, I guess we could go back and and see if it'll be on the app or anything like that. Because um, that because I didn't realize it was airing until I saw the commercial for it. Or like the finale, I was like, oh, so maybe I'll go back and and, and watch it because. Uh, I, uh, I listened recently re-listened to our episode just, you know, as I do with every one of our episodes. And I was like, and it made me want to see not the musical, either the Liam Neeson version again from 98 or, or, or a newer version. So My mom has been, she was prompting me to watch it, but I don't get PBS with my current subscription. Javert is a, a black actor, correct? I think so. Yeah. So I, I was thinking that this, I had seen it somewhere. I thought, oh, this looks good. And I think the trailer I watched, they even start before most adaptations start, where you actually get to see Fantine mm-hmm. and her, you know, how how she gets into her yeah. trouble, basically. And adaptations don't generally start there. They just start yeah. elsewhere. So this, They usually skip to Jean Valjean, yeah. right? Yep. Yeah. So I, I feel like it'll be more thorough. So, yeah, I'm interested in that. Maybe it'll come on. Sometimes BBC stuff comes on Amazon as well, so maybe. Mm-hmm. I'll be able to check it out there. Yeah, keep an eye out on your on your various streamings for for that. But yeah, and the PBS app is is um, free, so uh, and they usually have a decent decent library of stuff that you can you can stream on um, through the app. So I think some people. I was scrolling through the comments. It seems like somebody was upset that we 
did we miss? <laughs> we've, we've got some feedback on that. Um, <laughs> so they probably are not going to listen to you and watch that show. Yeah, I don't know if they're going to listen to this show either. Um, oh, it's another true. long one. That's so. true. All right, why don't you go ahead and get us uh, into the Vanity Fair? And we are not, of course, talking about the uh, magazine that you can buy. That's correct, yeah. Because <laughs> any time I go to <laughs> – you know, to Google search it, I've got to clarify what exactly I mean. Yeah. yeah. So I decided to do Vanity Fair. It's been, you know, I think part of the reason was I had read Les Mis mm -hmm. and I felt like this almost momentum building towards like bigger books. And I thought, I think I've got enough steam to do another book, big book. There's another one in me. And I thought, why not Vanity Fair? But of course, I've got a partner in crime, and I didn't want to just decide Vanity Fair and this poor guy have to suffer through it. So, of course, I asked Tom first to see if it would be okay and if I gave him, you know, advance warning. So we decided we were going to do it, and uh, we made it. We made it, which was good. And I was able to space out the big books with smaller books that uh, were engaging and sort of gave me a breather. So we may, I think. At the end of the day, at the end, that even at the beginning or the end of this episode, we just have to congratulate ourselves on not only getting through Les Miserables in 2019, but getting through Vanity Fair in 2019. Yeah, yeah. So I think we should congratulate ourselves. Yeah, and we've got you've got a family. I don't, and you, yes, and we both have pretty rigorous jobs that demand a lot of our time and so just the fact that we were I'm you know I'm pretty proud of us mm -hmm. I will say that at one point I did text you I think it was when the unfortunate stuff was happening with Notre Dame that had had I known had I some sort of strange foresight I would have recommended Hugo's <laughs> hunchback <laughs> it's on my to read list yeah uh, i read so. that last summer and it's yeah it's not bad and it's not as long as lay miz so it won't be mm -hmm. so bad but anyways but here we are we're at vanity fair so the first i'm going to talk about oh, oh oh i guess that's it that's that's the intro right there i see i've forgotten how we do this <laughs> what is your history with this book or have you seen an adaptation before you read this book I'd known of the Reese Witherspoon movie, but I've never. I, I had very little knowledge of the contents of the book. I knew it was a novel. Yeah, so this is pretty much my history with it. I saw the Reese Witherspoon film. I remember seeing it with my mom. I feel like I saw it at the art house theater that's around where my parents live. And I feel like I wasn't mature enough to see it at the time, though. If it came out in 2004, I was a junior. But I feel like I wonder if I really understood what Becky was up to and what she was doing and those sorts of things. And I was just looking at adaptations and it says that it makes her a more sympathetic character, which I thought was interesting. So I'm almost, I almost want to watch it again, but this mini series or this series that I watched on Amazon had done such a good job that I don't really want to watch something that might potentially taint it. So I'm not too sure about that, but that was generally what I knew. I, my mom had read it in high school, so I knew about it. I think there was always this feeling that she had it somewhere, and I asked her, you know, if I could borrow it, and she said, I don't know, it must have been Tess. Like, I guess we were confusing with Tess the Durbervilles that she actually owns. But she read it in high school, and 
it was just one of those things that's always been on my reading list, but I knew that it was incredibly long. And to a certain extent, I think I, I might be lazy and scared of the long books. <laughs> so I keep them up. But now, like I said, I've, I've been bolder and I've been trying to make my way through the bigger ones. So this is the first time that I've read it, but not the first time that I've been aware of what Vanity Fair is. So... How many times do we have to mention Tess of the D'Urbervilles for Professor Allen to, to spontaneously appear, appear on Sky? <laughs> How many times is it? Well, it's got to be in a row, probably like Bloody Mary. It's like Candyman. But, yeah. Oh, gosh. But the thing with him is, you know, when I went to the Batman conference over at Bowling Green and I visited him, we even started chatting about that. He has multiple copies in his house. Oh, so it's like Bailey with the death of Superman. Um, I yes, and I mean me with, but even me with Jane Eyre or Gone with the Wind. I don't. I only have one copy, and it's yeah. kind of astounding that he's got multiple copies. And so once he told me that, I said, "It really is your favorite, isn't it?" And he said, "Yes." And I just told you know I just can't understand it. Basically, because oh man, we can't get into. it. No, but no, he's no. Just, we, we, it's one of the episodes that we absolutely need to do with him on it when okay. we do Tess of the Derivals. Yeah. So. I mean, I have, I don't have very many books where I have multiple copies of the book. Um, because you gave me that book of H.G. Wells stories, I have two copies of War of the Worlds, but I gave one to Brett, my paperback one that I use for our episode, which is literally falling apart. I gave it to Brett. And, um, <laughs> and I have. Yeah, I think that's it. I might have I might have more than one copy of a novel because like I have a copy and then I have like one of those books where there's like three books in one. So there was like a doubling up somewhere, but I'm just reminded that he gave me something to give to you. So hopefully oh, okay. I remember again to give okay. whenever we see each other. But anyways. All right, so, anyway. Yeah, let's do a history of the author here and obviously Author biographies could go on a while for a while, but I, I think I chose a pretty good one that, that cuts down here. William Makepeace Thackeray was born in Calcutta in 1811, which I thought was actually interesting because portion portions of this particular novel actually reference or go to India. Mm -hmm. He was sent to England at the age of six and educated at the Charter House and at Trinity College. He later settled in Paris. And after a major financial loss, uh, he tried his career as a painter. And it was here that he met 19-year-old Isabella Shaw, upon whom he based many of his virtuous but weak heroines, and whom he married in 1836. If I were to guess which person she'd be in our novel, I would say it'd be Amelia, but I don't know. A year later, they settled in London, where Thackeray turned seriously to journalism. His writing for periodicals included Yellow Plush, Correspondence, which appeared in Fraser's Magazine, and then in 1841 in book form. Around this time, personal and domestic pressures caused the already helpless Isabella to subside into a state of complete and permanent mental collapse, and the subsequent breakdown of the marriage formed a central part of Thackeray's consciousness. Thackeray's early work centered around rogues and villains, most famously in The Luck of Barry Lyndon in 1844, and in his masterpiece, Vanity Fair, which appeared in monthly parts in 1847-1848, and which most clearly reveals his socially satirical edge. The Book of Snobs, which originally appeared as a series in Punch, also attacks Victorian society with vicious wit. Thackeray's later novels include the history of 
Pendennis, The History of Henry Esmond, Esquire, The Newcombs, The Virginians, which is the sequel to Henry Esmond, and The Adventures of Philip. He also wrote a series of lectures, The English Humorists of the 18th Century, and numerous reviews, articles, and sketches, usually in the comic vein. And he died suddenly in on sorry Christmas Eve of 1863. So that's, yeah, that's just a little bit about him and, and his personal life. Did you look up anything about him? Did you find anything interesting about him that you would like to share? No, but I, I did, as I was reading, um, wonder if this had been a serialized novel. And I did look that up because it you could it, it's very clear that it was serialized mm. in a number of places when you go from chapter to chapter. That was, I think, the only thing I looked up. Otherwise, I just... Uh, went with plowing through the book as I did. Yeah. And and you did, you made it. You made mm-hmm. it. Mhm. So I guess I'll do the plot synopsis now, which thank you to I believe the Wikipedia. Mm. Um because otherwise I'd get bogged down in the details. So this is a way to actually summarize everything. So here we go. The story is framed by its preface and coda as a puppet show taking place at a fair. The cover illustration of the serial installments was not of the characters, but of a troupe of comic actors at Speaker's Corner in Hyde Park. The narrator, variously a show manager or writer, appears at times within the work itself and is highly unreliable, repeating a tale of gossip at second or third hand. London, 1814. Rebecca Sharp, a.k.a. Becky, daughter of an art teacher and a French dancer, is a strong-willed, cunning, moneyless young woman determined to make her way in society. After leaving school, Becky stays with Amelia Sedley, Emmy, who is a good-natured, simple-minded young girl of a wealthy London family. There, Becky meets the dashing and self-obsessed Captain... George Osborne, Amelia's betrothed, and Amelia's brother Joseph, or Joss Sedley, a clumsy and vainglorious but rich civil servant home from the East India Company, hoping to marry Joss Sedley, the richest young man she has met. Becky entices him, but she fails. George Osborne's friend, Captain William Dobbin, loves Amelia, but only wishes her happiness, which is centered on George. Becky Sharp says farewell to the Sedley family and enters the service of the crude and profligate baronet Sir Pitt Crawley, who has engaged her as a governess to his daughters. Her behavior at Sir Pitt's house gains her favor, and after the premature death of his second wife, he proposes marriage to her. However, he finds that she has secretly married his second son, Captain Rawdon Crawley. But Becky very much regrets having done this, as she had no idea that his father's wife would die so soon after. Sir Pitt's elder half-sister, the spinster Miss Crawley, is very rich. Having inherited her mother's fortune and the whole Crawley family compete for her favor, so she would bequeath them her wealth. Initially, her favorite is Rod and Crawley, but his marriage with Becky enrages her. First, she favors the family of Sir Pitt's brother, but when she dies, she has left her money to Sir Pitt's oldest son, also called Pitt. News arrives that Napoleon has escaped from Elba. And as a result, this is kind of like in continuity with our actual podcast because we just did Napoleon. We did. As a result, the stock market becomes jittery, causing Amelia's stockbroker father, John Sedley, to become bankrupt. George's rich father forbids George to marry Amelia, who is now poor. Dobbin persuades George to marry Amelia, and George is consequently disinherited. George Osborne 
William Dobbin and Rod and Crawley are deployed to Brussels, accompanied by Amelia and Becky, and Amelia's brother, Joss. George is embarrassed by the vulgarity of Mrs. Major O'Dowd, the wife of the head of the regiment. Already, the newly wedded Osborne is growing tired of Amelia, and he becomes increasingly attached to Becky, which makes Amelia jealous and unhappy. He is also losing money to Rodden at cards and billiards. At a ball in Brussels, George gives Becky a note inviting her to run away with him. But then the army receives marching orders to the Battle of Waterloo, and George spends a tender night with Amelia and leaves. The noise of battle, and I will say that he didn't do that on his own. William's the one to tell him to do it. The noise of battle horrifies Amelia, and she is comforted by the brisk but kind Mrs. O'Dowd. Becky is indifferent and makes plans for whatever the outcome. If Napoleon wins, she would aim to become the mistress of one of his marshals. She also makes a profit selling her carriage and horses at inflated prices to Joss, seeking to flee Brussels. George Osborne is killed at the Battle of Waterloo, while Dobbin and Rodden survive the battle. Amelia bears him a posthumous son who carries on the name George. She returns to live in genteel poverty with her parents, spending her life in memory of her husband and care of her son. Dobbin pays for a small annuity for Amelia and expresses his love to her by small kindnesses toward her and her son. She is too much in love with her husband's memory to return Dobbin's love. Saddened, he goes with his regiment to India for many years. Becky also has a son named Rodden after his father. Becky is a cold, distant mother, although Rodden loves his son. Becky continues her ascent first in post-war Paris and then in London, where she is patronized by the rich and powerful Marquis of Stain. She is eventually presented at court to the Prince Regent and charms him further at a game of acting charades, where she plays the roles of Clytemnestra and Philomela. The elderly Sir Pitt Crawley dies and is succeeded by his son, Pitt, who had married Lady Jane Sheepshanks, Lord Southton's third daughter. Becky is on good terms with Pitt and Jane originally, but Jane is disgusted by Becky's attitude to her son and jealous of Becky's relationship with Pitt. At the summit of their social success, Rodden is arrested for debt, possibly at Becky's connivance. The financial success of the Crawleys had been a topic of gossip. In fact, they were living on credit even when it ruined those who trusted them, such as their landlord, an old servant of the Crawley family. The Marquis of Stain had given Becky money, jewels, and other gifts, but Becky does not use them for expenses or to free her husband. Instead, Rodden's letter to his brother is received by Lady Jane, who pays the 170 pounds that prompted his imprisonment. He returns home to find Becky singing to Stain and strikes him down on the assumption, despite her protestations of innocence, that they are having an affair. Stain is indignant, having assumed the 1,000 pounds he had just given Becky was part of an arrangement with her husband. Rodden finds Becky's hidden bank records and leaves her expecting Stain to challenge him to a duel. Instead, Stain arranges for Rodden to be made governor of Coventry Island, a pest-ridden location. Becky, having lost both husband and credibility, leaves England and wanders the continent, leaving her son in the care of Pitt and Lady Jane. As Amelia's adored son George grows up, his grandfather, Mr. Osborne, relents towards him, though not towards Amelia, and takes him from his impoverished mother, who knows the rich old man will give him a better start in life than she could manage. After 12 years abroad, both Joseph Sedley and Dobbin return. Dobbin professes his unchanged love to Amelia. Amelia is affectionate, but she cannot forget the memory of her dead husband. Dobbin mediates a reconciliation between Amelia and her father-in-law, who dies soon after. He had amended his will, bequeathing young George half his large fortune, and Amelia a generous annuity. After the death of Mr. Osborne, Amelia, Joss, 
George and Dobbin go to Pumpernickel, which is the Weimar, the Weimar in Weimar. Germany. Yeah, Weimar. Mm-hmm. It's, okay. <laughs> it's, they, um, it, yes. It's where I believe between the world wars, the seat of government was. They refer to it as the Weimar Republic. Ah, okay. Where they encounter the destitute Becky. Becky has fallen in life. She lives among card sharps and con artists, drinking heavily and gambling. Becky enchants Joss Sedley all over again, and Amelia is persuaded to let Becky join them. Dobbin forbids this and reminds Amelia of her jealousy of Becky with her husband. Amelia feels this that this dishonors the memory of her dead and revered husband, and this leads to a complete breach between her and Dobbin. Dobbin leaves the group and rejoins his regiment while Becky remains with the group. However... Becky has decided that Amelia should marry Dobbin, even though she knows Dobbin is her enemy. Becky shows Amelia George's note, kept all of this time from the eve of the Battle of Waterloo, and Amelia finally realizes that George was not the perfect man she always thought, and that she has rejected a better man. Yes, the piano. Remember the piano. Amelia and Dobbin are reconciled and return to England. Becky and Joss stay in Europe. Joss dies, possibly suspiciously, after signing a portion of his money to Becky as life insurance, setting her up with an income. She returns to England and manages a respectable life, although all her previous friends refuse to acknowledge her. I don't know if I could really call them friends, but thus ends Vanity Fair. Congratulate yourself for getting through that summary. Oh my gosh. Well, I guess it was longer than I thought remembered it being when I copied and pasted but it could have been way worse so let's just say that well the biggest question here and the one we all fear the most is whether you liked Vanity Fair uh, <laughs> I didn't like I didn't hate it I didn't love it it was just kind of like it was it was like the meh I don't know. It's just, it kind of had like a a non-effect. There were parts of that I seemed to enjoy more than others. There was a lot that I was just not really interested in. And there were parts that I was like completely lost um, and and went to, uh, went back and and talked to my good friend Cliff just to get some summaries. What I just, yeah. So I'm kind of just, I'm kind of somewhere in the middle. It was just kind of like, like kind of, uh, kind of an indifference to it. It was. It's not something I would read again, or or or, uh, or, or that. But um. But I wasn't like you know cursing you up and down on a regular basis. I'm it so was. Glad. It really was more of a. Okay, wait, how much do I have to? Like after a while, I was like, all right, I just got to get through this book, and like, how much do I have to get through? Mm. So. Okay, I would agree. I think I pretty quickly realized. Like, only a couple pages in that, oh, this is how this is going to be now. I had this idea, <laughs> I guess, because I had been on a good roll with longer novels and enjoying them. Les Mis, I said that yeah, was I much easier yeah, yeah. than, I think it was just rolling along on that. I really liked The Count of Monte Cristo, just rolling along. And then I got to this little guy, and I thought, oh, oh okay, this is how it's going to be. And I wasn't at, I mean, there were some parts that I was super engaged in. In other parts, I just was getting bogged down in the details, mm-hmm. which is, is one of the reasons why I have a hard time with, with Dickens and some of his novels. So yeah. I would agree that it, it was okay. It was okay. I don't think I 
I mean, this is our question for the end, but yeah, yeah, I wouldn't read it again. I mean, I didn't hate it. There are there are only a couple f- precious novels that I'll say I, I despise, and this is not on that list. So it has, but it's it was okay. I would say. Yeah. Okay. So. Okay, well, let's get into this discussion mm-hmm. here. The biggest thing, I think it's a bit of an elephant in the room, is that Vanity Fair is subtitled a novel without a hero, and it's self-proclaimed by the actual author. And every, you know, people had kept telling me about this, you know, the librarian of school, novel without a hero and everything. And I'm reading it, and I keep coming across William Dobbin. And I can't really see any negative characteristic or flaw about him. I mean, he's not perfect, but he's not, you know, he's not a Becky. He's not a, a, a George. And could he not be considered a hero if, if you're looking at him in comparison to uh, the other characters? Or do you think that he just differs so much from a conventional romantic hero that we can't consider him a hero? Or, final thing, is do you see, I didn't see any flaws necessarily, do you see any of the flaws that other characters exhibited, like vanity or hypocrisy or self-deception? I think your assessment that when you look at it relative to the other characters, he's the most heroic is probably on the nose. I guess it would, and and then like a conventional romantic hero. I'm trying to think of like other other types of heroes to compare him him to, because there's like this is the age of, um, you know, the Victorian age where you have like the Byronic hero and things like that. So like, but I wouldn't make him like Heathcliff from um, oh Wuthering Heights. It, I, a book that, you want to talk about that I don't like. But I think that's actually one of the few that we can agree on. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm just not a fan of that book. But yeah, I don't know. I don't – I'm trying to think of like he seems to cut, He seems to pop up and then go away for a while. Yeah. And I think it's it, – it, some of the things he does are virtuous and some of, and, and heroic. And, and there's the sense that um, – I guess basically looking at the summary and looking at the uh, the notes I was taking, uh, he he does seem to on some level save Amelia uh, by the end, or at least you know the fact that um, you know he you know he uh, he is with her and then you know more or less helps her get back on her feet um, after she's living in poverty for like such a long time or, or really scraping but like living hand to mouth and really scraping by for right. such a long time. But in the sense that your hero is like um, – so when I think hero, I think, A, somebody who is the main or the driving force of the story. So who really is the focus of things. Because, I I mean, as as much as I didn't enjoy the novel, I can certainly take the position that Jane Eyre is the hero of Jane Eyre. Granted, it's – she's the narrator it's her story but there there are heroic aspects to her character i think more than just a protagonist in the same way that like in, in the way that like frankenstein victor frankenstein is not a hero but um but then you have like you know you go back to the classic heroes like odysseus and he's the focus or telemachus even of his part of the odyssey they're the focus of the story dobbins a supporting character in my mind or i mean this is kind of an ensemble cast but in my mind the two main characters of the book are becky and amelia right. and Dobbins kind of it's so he's not the hero he is perhaps a hero 
Gordon does heroic things. So I can see where they're coming from with that because he's not like, you know, not the Superman of the book. I don't know about the, the last question though. I, I, I'm kind of with you. I, I don't, unless I'm missing something, I don't think he's developed enough in that regard to see that if he hasn't, if there's any hypocrisy to his actions and he's always the counterweight to these, like to um, George, for instance, when they're in, uh, the uh, the military, I believe he's kind of like the counterweight to him, isn't he? Like the foil, yeah. where George is kind of the boorish bro, and Dobbin's kind of the nicer stand-up guy. So, um, you know, he he plays that role as well. So, I don't see a lot of selfish aspects to him, but I don't know if he's around enough to be a hero hero. He almost reminds me of, and I can't, you know, if Rob Kelly were here, he'd know. But in Razor's Edge, the main character is practically not in the novel. But he's called the main character, and it's how, every, how he influences everybody. And when he pops up, how, you know, how are people reacting to him? And how has he changed, or how does he change people? And so Dobbin, yeah, I wouldn't say he's the main character, but he almost has that influence like he pops up at these crucial times and he's behind mm-hmm. the scenes with the Sedleys he's behind the scenes with Amelia's no that is the Sedleys uh the Osbournes and just the fact that he's you know constantly thinking of Amelia and and her how can he add to her happiness knowing at that point that he's not going to get love from her but he just loves her so much that he's willing to do so much for her I just feel like that's such a heroic thing to do I mean it's so self-sacrificial I think and and he's altruistic compared to everybody else who's got some sort of end goal i mean back for becky especially it's always what's the next thing that i can do she's never content with anything and for me i i feel like he's the hero but he's the hero that's behind the scenes and so maybe that's why it's unconventional unconventional and maybe people overlook him i can't honestly see any flaws that he has you know vanity hypocrisy self-deception i mean i don't really see that he bought I'm even trying to think about the the blow up between him and Amelia and everything he says is true about Becky that she's probably not the type of person you want in your company remember what she did with George like trying to lure him away Uh and you know he's speaking truth and love to Amelia but she's just so she's put her late husband on such a pedestal that it's hard for her to to see past that but I don't know I just I just disagree that it's a novel without a hero I think William Dobbin is that hero and whether he's present in you know 10% of the novel or eight I still think that he's heroic in my mind okay well we'll move on to Becky <laughs> so without a doubt, obviously, she's the most intelligent and interesting character in, you might disagree, but I feel like this is No, I find she of- was the, one of the, if not the most interesting, at least one of the more interesting, like, kind of my attention perked back up when we were dealing directly with her story. Yeah. And it's hard to, I almost want to take a break, but before I get to Becky, actually, I want to ask you about the narrator. Sure. Because... Thackeray is the narrator, and Mm -hmm. he's also almost like his own character in the novel. Mm -hmm. And I wondered what you thought with his 
intrusions into the novel because they felt different me so one of my questions will be how do they feel like if you were to compare to other novels like charles dickens or even with victor with that was it right victor hugo Hugo, (laughs) we just read you know how how do these intrusions feel as the author pops in and yeah i guess i'll just do that and then go off of go off of that i See, with Hugo, I didn't mind them as much because I was so enthralled with the novel that I I was interested in hearing what he was saying. And he was talking about history and some other things. And it was just – it. I got very wrapped up in the world of everything in Les Miserables that the fact that he was going off on tangents about the strategies of the war and – Battle of Waterloo and stuff, which is probably a dry topic to a lot of people. It didn't bother <laughs> me. Dickens, I'm almost used to it, right? You were saying that, like, you know, it's and it's Dickens is not an author that I particularly enjoy reading. Uh, the, a Christmas Carol aside, I'm trying to think of another author who's done this. Um, see, the thing is, like, this is supposed to be a satire of society and a commentary and he's making direct commentary and then uh, another novel that's uh, older than this that i think of when i think of satirical novel about british society is gulliver's travels by jonathan swift but i don't and granted it's been a number of years since i've read that i don't think swift offers up as much commentary because gulliver is telling the tale so the satire comes just through the material as opposed to through his commentary on things um, I guess Would in you places consider of, Nick in Greg yeah, Gatsby? that's a good yeah. I think Nick is probably a really good comparison as well. You know, um, I like Nick in Gatsby though because I feel like he's the voice of or and especially as a character, he's clearly the reader, the stand-in for the reader in a number of places where he's the outsider, kind of looking in on what is going on in the society of New York in the 1920s. Um, it's a little more complex than that, but just as, at, a, at a simple read, that's like your Nick's your gateway in there. I think in some cases, I guess it works a little bit. In other cases, it doesn't. But then again, I'm reading this. This was what, 1847, 1848 or so, uh, or 1846, 1847. So we're reading this, what, 160, 70 years, 170 years after it was published. I don't think as a modern audience we're going to get all of it and we're going to understand all of it. But I could see where a then contemporary audience would be humored by a lot of his stuff. you know, Because either I'm not getting the references correctly or um, I just don't give a crap <laughs> to be honest with you in some cases. But with the style where he's writing these little essays on – um, and I don't even think I made comments about what he was writing about. Um, okay, so in chapters 51 through 53, my note says, opens with discourse and all of the fashion Becky now has access to, despite women's best efforts to snub her, she gets the access she wants. And they also wonder why she gets the money to entertain. Um, he's probably, he's making, obviously making a comment on that sort of like, entry into society and and the gatekeeping that went on, you know, especially among women and young women in the society at the time. And I think in some places it like really does work, especially when he's working with the characters, but other times where I think Mickey might be kind of just going off on his little tangents, I get lost. Mm. So. Yeah. To me, he was the most obtrusive narrator I've ever read. And I was almost 
feeling like he was obnoxious. And I guess it was the I think that was his purpose because I got that thing, tone as well. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he's just making fun of the society, but mm-hmm. he almost is pressuring me to think of, a, of these characters in a certain way. Like he's not very generous with Amelia. I mean, no. he kind of calls her boring and, and looks down at her as if, you know, almost taking the place of the society women would actually think of her. And I don't want my narrator to do that. Even you know, or the author, I want to make my own opinion of Amelia, and and I just didn't like that sort of pressure because well, Amelia, I think, was she was just fine. Was she as interesting or engaging as Becky? No, but the point of Amelia and her character was to be like she was, and I didn't need someone coming in and basically like casting this negative light on her. So that sort of annoyed me. Well, is it because it's a narrator who is not a character? Because Holden Caulfield does this throughout The Catcher in the Rye, right? He's always commenting on the people he runs into. Yet, for some reason, I mean, maybe it's just me. I don't know how you feel about Catcher. And I know that I, I know people who can't stand that book. But to me, it works because he's the main character and all this is happening to him. So we're getting we're we're we know we're getting the subjective narration right. through his eyes because he's he is the one telling us the story whereas Thackeray is not a character in the novel so we expect a third person narration to be relatively objective and it's not right so is that what's unsettling I to think the two so things? yeah and i mean even if you go with his like puppet show route where you know he's the one sort of as the puppet master and everything it's still i don't know it's not like it's he's like God in the novel and he's the one who's created these characters. So look at them. Like he's yeah. just imparting too much judgment on them that I just – I didn't care for it. And some of them like obviously do you really want to – Stain is, is a bit of a smarmy kind of guy and there are other people. But I think for Amelia it's the one that I, I liked the least that he did that because there's – she was perfectly fine. She didn't have to have – this negative yeah. character and it happened right off the bat so you didn't really have any time to judge her for yourself so yeah. that was that was a little frustrating i don't know if i've ever gotten so annoyed at a narrator actually yeah. so. well and, and the other thing is is that i was going, going back to kind of our first questions too about a hero heroless novel and stuff this is very much a proto soap opera mm-hmm. there are so many characters and so many situations and it goes on for on and on and on and on and on Back in the early 90s, uh, for the better part of a summer, I watched Days of Our Lives because Marlena was possessed. It was cheesy. It was awesome. But um, <laughs> but also in the, in, the, in the 2000s, part of the late 90s into the 2000s um, for a while, uh, I flitted in and out on all my children, mainly because my, my in-laws used to watch it. And, uh, and my wife used to watch it sometimes here and there, especially when we were at her in-laws because they would, you know, they would get home from work and they would watch the soaps and stuff. And it was like, and, and you know what, you get this with, um, Riverdale's a really interesting show and, and, and applies here where like, there are certain, there's so many storylines going on at once. Like episodes will have a plots, B plots, C plots, D plots, and E plots. I mean, it's just crazy. And, there may be like one plot that you're just like kind of enduring to get to the other ones. Uh, Riverdale is like that for me with Archie. I couldn't care less about Archie Andrews, but like the whole, but Jughead, Cheryl, my favorite character, Veronica, Betty, bring that on Archie, whatever. Um, or, um, you know, it actually is a really good, um, people, people who don't in our, in our geekosphere who don't, uh, re watch, uh, Riverdale, but they might be familiar with, 
uh, George R. R. Martin's Song of uh, Ice and Fire. And I have not watched a single minute of Game of Thrones, but I have read the first three books. There are huge chunks of a couple of the books that I've read that I kind of skimmed through because I couldn't care less. Bring on the girl with the dragons. Like, right. I, I, that's the only, that was like for a while through, I think the second book and, and through parts of the third book, and I haven't read four and five. Four that's four what five I was. Exist? Oh, yeah, yep. there's six five. I think seven, six and seven are the ones he's working on. There were large parts of it. Like I couldn't tell you what happened because I was skimming through it and it was kind of like there were a lot of people going around and killing each other. Um, and then a wedding happened and everything, everybody died and that was cool. But like, but then you get to Danny and the dragons and the outskirts and I'm like, oh, this is really, really fascinating. And like everything slowed for me. And that's how I felt like in a, parts of this novel where like I was like, eh, eh. Eh, Lady Jane. I kept seeing Lady Jane, and I kept thinking Lady J from GI Joe. Um, <laughs> and I'm just like, I literally kept thinking Lady J. But like, I got to Becky, and I'm like, okay, this is interesting. And some of the stuff with Amelia was interesting. So, the narrator, therefore, to bring it back to the original point, the narrator, therefore, <laughs> know, in I'm my mind, how you got there? See, see, I can do this. The narrator, therefore, in my mind, should be objective. Okay. Because there's so much going on, you should let the audience decide for itself who it likes and who it doesn't. And it's kind of annoying when he's all like, you know, obnoxious toward one character and not toward another or whatever. Yeah. And even though your train of thought, hopefully listeners can follow it. Maybe I'll understand it when I'm listening back and editing this. No. Lady Jane, that's how you ended up. But back to what I was talking about. Okay. Well, back to my original question before I went on a side question because I did. I, I think the narrator is an important thing to discuss. So, Becky Sharp, what do you think of the narrator's constant moralizing about Becky as well as the novel's other characters? Because the narrator goes out of his way to expose her strategies and also condemn her motives. Yeah, she's kind of like she does come off as a bit of a tryhard. Like <laughs> she's trying to weasel her way into society, and even though like like people in society like that, the other people, these people they're trying to gain acceptance of, can see it coming like a mile away. And they're always. I mean, even if she, even at the points where she actually was in, so to speak. You could tell they were still kind of looking their, down their noses at her or tolerating her. In that regard, I think the character and the situation are well written because I don't know if he's condemning her or if he's making a comment on their, like I said, gatekeeping in that way. There's there's something very high junior high or high school about it. Um, but at the same time, I also got the feeling that like – um, because this is the 1800s, he can get away with what is essentially a very sexist evaluation of her, that she is a ambitious woman, women, ambitious woman, and we can't have that. Like she's like she can only be so ambitious and then we, she has to remember what her place is. And so like if he's moralizing about her, it's like basically he's also putting her in her place, so to speak. Um, within the context and confines of the society. Do you think he's consistent with his moralizing? Does he do it across the board with all of the characters? No. If I'm trying to remember, I want to say that he's a little more sympathetic toward Amelia in places. Although he probably is uh, a little critical of the way she 
kind of conducts her life and and her grief over George. And I know we're going to get to that, but um, but yeah, I think he's I think he's a little more yeah I think he, he not praising of her, but like he seems to like Amelia, like holding up Amelia more as one thing and Becky is the opposite or something like that. So I think he does favor one character over the other. Yeah, and I think it, it the moralizing obviously goes to his purpose. I think and criticizing society at the time yeah so i think if he's able to show these people and the different things that they do he's able to show various aspects of english society and then Mm -hmm. condemn them in different ways so i think that's that's the main purpose of having this moralizing here Mm -hmm. the narrator is normally omniscient but there's one particular moment that he fails to be omniscient and purposefully i think does it and this is when rawdon catches i say catches catches becky with stain and so my question there are two questions here do you think that becky and lord stain were actually lovers or do you believe that her her plea of innocence and that's my first question. And then the other one is, why do you think of all moments that that is the time the narrator lets us down and doesn't give us the full the full picture? I don't know if they were sleeping together. If this had been the 20th century, they would have been. You know, like I said, soap opera, right? Yeah. I don't know if back in the 19th century he would have gone that far. Um I think that she had a little more virtue than that anyway. Not that now I'm slut shaming her, but, but, you know, I think, I don't think she, I don't think she's that kind of girl. Um, so to speak, um, I think she, she knows how to use somebody or, um, be coy enough to get what she wants without having to go that far. So I don't know if they actually were lovers, but I think that his assumption is justified because I think she, he, I think deep down he thinks of her as duplicitous and is, would assume that she would go that far. Mm. Um, so it's justified in that level. Like it, or it makes a logical sense. Um, now with the objective narrator, I don't know, maybe Thackeray just felt like um, this is a scene that, it's best if I just let it happen um, because it, it was, it was building to this, like you know, maybe in his mind, like we all knew this was going to happen or some, some in some way or another. And it, and it's more dramatic. We just kind of let the scene happen for what it is, as opposed to offering up commentary and things. And we can, we can dissect it after the, uh, after the scene, because he, he has, it happens to her in um, chapter 53 54 is the immediate aftermath. And then we really don't see her until chapter uh, like 64. Cause then we're back with Amelia and then we know that she went to, um, and then we find out like, you know what happened to her and everything. Cause Amelia, um, once Amelia kind of gets back on her feet and he, and she gets all the money, Amelia is like, if I entertaining people again, and um, Becky ends up at one of Amelia's parties, and then we pick up with Becky there again. So it's almost like you know, it's almost like a few episodes have gone by, and all of a sudden, oh, there's Becky! Like, oh wow, wow, she's back! What happened to her? And um, so I think for this to have like you know this 
he's going for the big, big dramatic moment. So for him to pull himself away and just let it happen is probably for dramatic effect. And I think it actually does work. And I think also, I, I guess it might just be one of these times where he's letting, instead of forcing his opinion on us, uh-huh. he's letting us make our choice yes. for ourselves in whether we think that Becky has actually had an affair or mm-hmm. actually not. I like to think that Becky does, well, however desperate she gets, which is pretty darn desperate, that she did not go this far. No, she has a line that she won't cross. I think so. I do think so. I, I, um, I mean, her mother, obviously, you know, there's the whole rumor of, of course, she's an opera dancer, and we all know what that means, that which is always mm-hmm. throughout there. Yeah. And I think maybe she always just wanted to rise above that. Mm-hmm. And I also think that she's way too wily and creative to get into that situation. I think she can get money in other ways. Yeah. And so I agree. whether, you know, whether there might be caresses or, or kisses, I think that might be true, but I don't know if, if they ever went because he seemed like a pushy person. I don't think they ever went the whole way. So okay. That's my, yeah, thing. I agree. I agree with you. Okay. Let's talk about Amelia a little bit as, as mm-hmm. our co, our co main character. So at times she's lauded by the narrator as a paragon of womanhood, though he does admit that some people, especially other women, don't see her charms. Yet Amelia's excessive grief over her scapegrace husband's death, her hapless passivity in the face of poverty, her spoiled son's eager embrace of wealth and position later on, and her unthinking exploitation of Undobbin's devotion certainly make us wonder about how much good her goodness does in the real world. (laughs) Are Amelia's sentimental illusions and steadfast virtue in the end preferable or preferable to Becky's hard-headed realism and unscrupulous scheming. I I think the answer some lies somewhere between. If I'm being completely honest, sure. you might agree with me uh, because I think maybe there's a criticism there in that she's too saintly in that regard, or that she's too she's too good in a sense like especially like if you think about the way she puts George on a pedestal and George was not the type of guy you would put on a pedestal it it hurt me a little bit when Georgie she turns Georgie over to oh what's his name Osborne Osborne and Georgie like becomes a spoiled brat and it kind of hurt because up until then Georgie was this nice little kid and then it's just like he has a change of scenery, and he's so easily influenced. He just becomes this little, this little brat, and and it's just like it. It, it I felt bad for her, even though she knew that was probably going to happen, and she wanted him to have a better life, and he just becomes yeah, and she's just like oh, awful. But like the fact that she's held up as this sort of like you know this is this woman who basically pines her whole life for her dead husband and then um, all of the, the good and the, and the giving to others. And this is almost like this martyrdom. Um, I think it's, it's on one hand, it looks better than Becky, but on the other hand, he's probably making similar criticisms of like, you know, this is, this isn't worth it either, or this isn't realistic enough. You can't really maintain this in your life. Yeah, I agree. I think they're two extremes and it's, you know, they both have their, their flaws. So it's hard to say which one is preferable to the other. Mm -hmm. I think 
you know, knee jerk, I'd be like, whoa, Amelia, because, you know, all that bad stuff that happened to, to Becky. But she was so attached to George that she was not able to see his flaws. And uh, I, I feel like it just got in, her into some bad situations. Um, so I would agree with you. I guess that's a non-answer, though. We cheated, didn't we, by saying the middle? Well, in the middle? I don't know. It's, I mean, my boy Aristotle would say that you have to find oh, the meaning between these two extremes, right? Okay. I mean, that's the whole idea of, of in Nick and McKean ethics. You know, the, ver- the, the actual virtue lies between there. And, you know, she and her unthinking exploitation of Dobrin's devotion is a really good way to phrase it, by the way, because it's – you know, she she kind of strings him along at times. Um, you know, not I as bad as some. No, I, that's the thing. I think she doesn't realize she's doing it, but she is just a little, at least a little bit. She's stringing him along. Yeah. I mean, granted, he's going along with it because he's he's in love with her. He's but. in love with her. Yeah. Okay. Aha. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah, so let's talk about this. So near the end of the book, Becky presses Amelia to marry Dobbin by revealing the unsavory truth about Amelia's late husband. And this also comes after the time that I, I think Amelia realizes that Dobbin was the one to buy the piano for her, yeah. which was a key moment. How do you explain this uncharacteristic altruism on Becky's part, given the animosity between her and Dobbin at the time? And I'll also ask a follow-up question. Do you think that this gives Becky redemption? Do you think she's redeemed in this act for some of the other stuff that she had done, in particular to Beck, uh, to Amelia? I think it I don't think it totally redeems her I think it uh, it helps you know I think it's a step toward redemption it's her shot of redemption I, I I was glad that actually it softened George a little bit in in Amelia's eyes because she does accept Dobbin and they do get married I don't know I mean it's it's maybe it's because it's the end of the novel that we're supposed to accept it regarding Becky kind of having a redemption or at least getting doing something good before the end of it. But I don't, I don't necessarily, um, it's, it's, even though it's altruistic, it's still advantageous on her part to her to do that. There's, there's, she still gets something out of it. So it's not completely altruistic, but it's very much in character. You know, I don't, I think she would, she would claim that she's not scheming as much as she is, but even then it's just kind of like, even if you're not deliberately scheming here, you're still getting something out of this. So, Yeah. I, I think it puts her on the path of redemption. Mm-hmm. But since we know that, you know, she's able to sway Joss and I don't know <laughs> what She gets money to too. Joss somehow. Yeah. <laughs> that uh, maybe that path starts and stops rather quickly. <laughs> but yeah. I feel like pff, Becky at that point is at the lowest I think that she's ever been. She really has no friends in the world. Her husband is away from her. Not sure if he's dead. Her son is really a non-entity because she despised him. Mm-hmm. And he despised her because of Yeah, her. that's a terrible relationship. It was really bad. Isn't it? It's so bad. It was. And no money. She's just hanging out with people and probably doing what she's always done. So I think, you know, she looks at Amelia, this friend that came back to her welcomed her you know i think she was tricked a little bit but welcomed her back in the circle and so i think for once for once she did a a good deed Mm. and so i think it's not too shocking just because i think 
Becky does have some sort of a heart somewhere. And so I think it just came out at a particularly crucial time. And I don't think she's ever wanted to drag other people down with her. I think she always just wanted to be up at the top and not Mm -hmm. necessarily have people with. So it would be unlike her to look for other ones, someone else's suffering. So I think she, she looks at this moment as like, you need to, you need to capture that. But even without her prompting, Amelia said, it's too late. I already wrote him a letter. So in the end, it's null and void. But you got to see something that Becky did. Yeah. So, but Amelia did it on her own. She ends up, Becky ends up like after this with Amelia and then marrying Joss and then Joss dying under mysterious circumstances. <laughs> Black Widow. Nobody really wants anything to do with her after that. Like she ends up living comfortably but kind of alone, you know, like out or at least outside of this group. Like after a certain point, everybody's kind of done with her. Yeah. So I don't know if she gets what she wants in the end, as far as recognition in society or being on top of society or whatever. She doesn't die in poverty um, or destitute, which is the path she was on when she got um, when Rodden uh, divorced her and everything. So it is a little bit in between the two where she does get a little bit of what she deserves, but she doesn't get beaten down in the end. Well, let's bring it up to modern times and ask a question, uh, like a little comparison question here. How do actually, no, I'm so sorry. Well, I guess I could. Well, yeah, I'm going to go back. Uh, I'll bring it back to modern times later. Okay. Thackeray had whoa Thackeray Thackeray has a lot Thackeray. of people. I know Thackeray. He's got a lot of people in his novel. Obviously, many colorful secondary characters. Were there any of them that you thought were well, like true to life, or just really depicted well, or did you find any like that elicited emotion, whether it's positive or negative? Um, I think I already mentioned how I felt for Amelia when when uh, when Georgie just almost immediately just started being patronizing toward her because Osborne because you know he went to Osborne and he started like molding him that is the there is something realistic about that the idea that somebody else in your family can take your child and influence them to turn them against you you know yeah. whether it be a, an ex an ex or or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or something you know people people are in in families like even they don't even have to be rich they can be very manipulative toward one another so so that i found pretty realistic some of the situations like the this the courtship of amelia and george his subsequent death it, it it's very much of like what i've seen in like other stories from other wars you know the idea that like in World War II, there were a lot of there were a number of men and women who got married like right before the men shipped off to war. I mean, believe the phenomena was called a war bride. Um, and uh, there's more than one film that come where there's a character that comes back to this wife that he barely knows, and you know they have to try to make a go of it. Um, I think of one of the characters in William Wyler's The Best Years of Our Lives. Uh, is like that, where this guy had married this woman right before they went off to war. They barely knew each other. Um, and they come back, and it's just like they're completely incompatible for one another. It's just it's this 
strange situation. So I thought that like her marriage to George was kind of like that because George is this like frat bro in in some ways. Like he's out like partying it up and everything. It's like, dude, you're married. You got a girl back home. Like, what are you doing here? And he doesn't seem to to the point where he's like basically proposing to Becky. So I thought that was actually pretty realistic or at least something I could see playing out now. What about you? I would agree with George just because especially he's annoying in the beginning because he's pretty maybe not hateful, but he's pretty dismissive of Becky in the beginning. And then all of a sudden later on, Becky becomes more of an attractive person. Is he he Steph and pretty in pink? (laughs) Oh gosh. It's been a while since I've seen that. So I'll take James. He's just James Spader's character. But the other person, honestly, that frustrated me was Miss Crawley, the elder. Okay. Because she went on and on about equality and that, you know, like trying to almost even out the, the social status, stati, stati, statuses, I don't know, and, and having status this, status status, who knows, <laughs> and having this really open-minded thinking about, you know, the classes and, and making them equal and, and she didn't really see class lines and she had sympathetic feelings towards the poor and then becky marries rodden and she's like that you know she does not deserve to be in this family and i thought that is how dare you so that i mean that's the main like hypocrisy right there but i guess it's true right you can prattle on and on about your politics but when it happens to you (laughs) then you sort of uh you don't really care about it so Uh i think that was the one person that i thought oh this is a delightful character and then all of a sudden no she's terrible Okay, so now I'm going to get back to the world. Okay. Okay, here we go. Do you think that we could potentially compare the world that's depicted in Vanity Fair with its self-conscious morality, its well-defined social strata, to our world today? And if so, what is different, what is the same? I think so. We as Americans like to think that we're a little less, um, a little more, all men are created equal in a sense than than this but come on this our society is is clearly like has things along the line of classes and you know i mean we the great gatsby is one of the great american novels for a reason right i mean so uh, yeah and i can see this we don't even need to to do a novel i can see this by flipping through cable channels and seeing like the way that we hold up certain celebrity the way that we hold up certain or even if you want to take the celebrity sheen off of things the way that we turn to the concept of like status through possessions and things like that you know like like how there's like you know you you have to have certain things and certain things will show that you are of a certain status whether it's like a if you walk around with a Hermes Birkin bag, oh my. which is thousands, I think it's like a $5,000 bag. It might even be more. I'm sure that oh. Amanda can tell me how much it is. I mean, uh, we're talking like if somebody she if, has one in her closet. No, she does not have one in her closet. Um, <laughs> but the point being, people who know that bag can see that bag. They know how much that bag costs. And that's your status. So the, this idea that you are or you're dressed a certain way, you're wearing certain labels, you're driving a certain car. Like this idea that we have in our society that like labels and particular brands and things denote your 
status, I think, plays very well into this, the well-defined social strata. Um, the self-conscious morality, I think, is also is also the thing that, um, yeah, I, I guess I could see that as well. You were, you were just kind of mentioning it, that there are a lot of people in our society who are just sanctimonious, yeah. you know? Um, hypocritical sanctimonious and then and all of a sudden like their their morals get adjusted when it's something they're involved with you know and the gatekeeping the gatekeeping of the women of society due to Becky um, and Amelia to a certain extent um, but mostly Becky it's certainly there it's certainly there in many many different circles and many many different professions and, and things like that hell we still have debutante balls in this country I mean you know Things like that. So yeah, I think I think you could apply a number of what he's saying here and and write this for the 21st century. I'm sure there are novels about the rich in the 21st century or about the social classes in the 20th and 21st century that recall what, what we read here. I agree with everything you said. I think also just with the introduction of, I mean, if this guy was around now, he mm. would have a multimedia novel, and he would be able to do. I don't know if you've read something called Everything Everything. But I've heard of it, but I haven't. In read it. that, there's like uh, there are images, obviously, and then like emails and texts, like little images and things. But with the advent of social media, you know, anyone can comment or critique anyone on anything now so i think there there certainly is a lot of that like why did that person do that sort of thing yeah and some of it of course might be deserved uh is that the platform to do it well, i don't know mm. um but yeah but i i think that this guy would have a field day with society yeah. now yeah especially like that whole concept we now have of, of the influencer you know, that, that person who's like big on Instagram or something and like, you know, because they buy something or they show something off, like other people like are, are bound to um, like buy it. So companies like go after those people to like, you know, basically um, push their products and things like that. Thackeray would have had fun with both of the with either one of the fire festival documentaries that came out earlier this year, oh. which I really recommend watching. They are just like basically like hubris personified like the just this 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 overwhelming arrogance and and just the disaster that results from it and you're just basically looking at all of these people and you're just like look at all these a-holes and it's so satisfying when they fall okay. so anyway well, my, yeah, my <laughs> last my jerk. we're getting yawn. my last question is comparing other novels with vanity fair we've done it actually a little bit throughout mm -hmm. this discussion but do you see any similarities maybe with characters or perhaps it's social observation just yeah do you see any novels that you've read or you can think of that compare with vanity fair i think gatsby works um i know we've brought gatsby up already I'm trying to think of novels i've actually read i don't know contemporary to this would be would be one of the bronte novels Rebecca? Interesting. Maybe? At least for that whole undercutting of somebody's debut in society type of thing where the not where the narrator and then um oh I'm I'm blanking on the villainess's name. Mrs. DeWinter? Yes, DeWinter and and things. And Rebecca herself, you know. Talk about a novel where there's a character who's not there and completely influences the 
the events and things like that. I am sure there are others, but I have not read them or I'm blanking on them right now. There's a rumor. My mother texted me this rumor. I want to set this up first because I was reading, I started reading this book and getting to know Becky a little bit. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, Becky really reminds me of blank. I shouldn't reveal what it is. Then I texted my mom and said, well, I started Vanity Fair. And then she texted me back, did you know that Margaret Mitchell partially based Scarlett O'Hara off of Becky Sharp? And that was the character. I was like, wow, this reminds me of Scarlett O'Hara a little bit. When I was reading it, I thought, well, 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 I can absolutely see that. So you've got some gone with the wind situations there. But the entire time I was reading it and then watching this TV show, I was trying to figure out who is the better of the two. Because in my opinion, and I know if you've not read this, so this is kind of a hard discussion to have because I'll just be talking to myself. But in my opinion, Scarlett O'Hara is the better of like the bad characters. Because <laughs> Scarlett is not, she's not like a, a goody two-shoes or anything. And it's interesting because Melanie Wilkes is absolutely a... Um, an Amelia. But with Scarlett, who does woo men who does have children that she's not necessarily fond of, though hateful, that's, uh, I mean, she's a bit dismissive of her first child, Charles's son, but she loved Bonnie Blue, so I think there's not that much, of that. that's a hard comparison to make there. But then I get down to what were the purposes for their these their machinations to get money, and Becky was all about status and how can I get to the top, whereas Scarlett was very much survival and either for like herself or her family or Tara and it was just how to protect that family and get back to some stability and yeah she goes to some ridiculous means to get there and I think there's similarities there but I just feel like Scarlett O'Hare in my and I'm biased because I really love that novel but I just feel like overall she's a better character even though she's absolutely flawed I think Becky it's really hard besides that last scene to you know give her any any positive remarks besides being you know intellectual or intelligent and engaging she's not a very wholesome character so I do very much as I was reading it even before being prompted by my mom I'm like wow this is Scarlett O'Hara so I think that's pretty interesting but other novels society wise I think yeah, I would defer to you and, and The Great Gatsby as we, we talked about, I'm sure. I'm, I wish I could think of, like, contemporary novels, but I feel yeah, like, I'm to you think. know, social status, I, you know, and now I'm thinking contemporaries in, like, 2000s, but I feel yeah. like that's not necessarily an issue that we're dealing with too much, you know, how to get, because even, like, The Hate You Give, that was certainly, you got this character who's living um and has grown up in in this hard neighborhood but she's able to go to an upper class private school mm-hmm. and but she's not looking to you know she feels that tension between the two roles she's not looking to to raise herself and and move on up so i'm trying to think of someone who a character who has like married or tried to be moved herself up and i'm sure there is we're just not coming up <laughs> well it's it's very possible that there there are and there are novels and things but neither of us has really read them because i don't know if it's if the modern day versions of this are necessarily within our usual wheelhouse when it comes to these things so i'll give you scarlet O'Hara. I, I beyond the very famous scenes from the film i'm not 
versed at all when it comes to Gone with the Wind. You know, I can I've seen what they show on television when they talk about Gone with the Wind, but I've actually never sat and watched the whole movie, and I've never read the book. So, um, and, and now I'm actually thinking of the very famous Carol Burnett show sketch went with the wind where she descends the staircase in the dress made of the drapes, but across her shoulders is the curtain rod. Oh no. Oh, Oh, it's such a classic sketch. Wow. Yeah. Um, so no, I, I I don't have it, but, but yeah, I think there's gotta be like, um, uh, even I think it's because the, the, the word vanity is in there. There's a Tom Wolf novel from the eighties called the bonfire of the vanities, but I've never read it. So I don't know if it would apply here, but I, I keep coming back. That title keeps flashing to my head probably because the word vanities is in there. So maybe it could apply here. Um, I'm sure there are, yeah, I'm sure there are a couple of novels, especially the, maybe the, in the, in the eighties or, or a little bit further down, um, that, that people could probably tell us match up really well with this, but I honestly haven't read them. Yeah. Think there have been any comics that fall into this? Are there any char- comic characters that like is just looking to to move up in social status? Oh, uh, I guess Booster Gold, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't you think that's as best as we can do? Probably, I would say, especially since yeah, there's the, definitely a self esteem issue with him. Is there any character that always wants to move? Maybe not. Uh, well, social status isn't like move up the ranks of like the Justice League. Could you think of anyone? Oh, <gasps> mm. that guy we just read. What was his name? In World Prometheus. War Three, Prometheus. Yes, kind of, yeah. right? Because he was just yeah. a side character. He's like, I've had enough of that. Yeah, Triumph was one. I think there was Triumph too, the one who had been forgotten, and uh, and and came back, and and he was kind of motivated by his own jealousy and things like that. Yeah, I'm trying to think, and I'm drawing a complete blank. <laughs> Because sometimes it's motivation by motivated by jealousy over the success of the character, and that's sort of like I was always jealous of you, or you always got what I wanted, and that sort of way, which I don't think applies here as much. So I, there's also like a, some of the some of the high school stuff might apply. Like you know, if you think of if you think of some of the motivations in in say like a Heather's or a Mean Girls of some of the characters where. You know, you have certain characters getting their way and manipulating the situation, other characters coming in and taking over. And um, it's not one for one, but I think there's there's echoes of that in in those stories um, because of the way it's supposed to be a, a commentary on a ver- what is a very stratified society. Maybe, maybe there's a little bit of that in there as well. I can see that, yeah. Okay, well, are there any other questions that you would... Uh like to ask before we move on no um i think we covered everything pretty well i mean it's a really dense novel in some places and and he goes off on some of the tangents and it's it's easy to i would say it's easy to get lost with the secondary characters um and and my best advice in reading was find a character that you have as almost like your anchor um, whether it be Becky or Amelia, because that way, when you come around to them, you re-engage a little bit if you find right. yourself getting lost. Because yeah. that's, I think, got me through the book. Yeah, I had to read, I think, the Queen's Crawley section a couple times. Yeah. Because I didn't recognize right away that Queen's Crawley was a place. 
Mm-hmm. And so I'm trying yep. to figure out who this queen crow is. <laughs> and I have to go back and I'm like, oh, okay. So, yeah, you just have to be – I you can't read it quickly. It's not – it's no, a, it's no. A, it's a, yeah. So, but yeah. So the we we decided we probably wouldn't read it again. Do you think you would recommend it to somebody if they um, said, "Hey, I was thinking about reading Vanity Fair." Would you say give it a go or like? Eh. I would warn them in the same way we just did. I would recommend maybe um, breaking it up into a chapter a night, like as and reading it episodically. Yeah. Um, and just kind of, or just, I, so you I mean, did like two chapters a night, right? Yeah, I was, cause I was basically trying to pace myself because there's only so many times I could renew the book. And <laughs> <That's true. laughs> so it's like, I got to get this done. And then by the end I was like, I just want to get this done. So there were type days where I was just blowing through them like, you know, crazy. But yeah, if you, I would just, I, I would say if you're really interested in reading it, give it a try, but know that like it's, it's dense. You can get lost in places and maybe doing it like episodically and treating it almost like your soap opera, your, your shows, your stories, your con- your single issue comics or something yeah. might, be a, might be a good mentality to take on knowing that this was serialized anyway. Yeah, I agree. The librarian at school bought it basically because I wanted her to buy it. And she was also interested in – well, it wasn't there. I feel like it should be in the library. And she was also interested in reading it. And she had watched the show and she really liked it. And I told her that the novel was okay. And she said – and so I went to her today to tell her uh, that I finished watching the TV show and that I was recording with you. And I – and um she said that because I said, you know, it's just okay. She wasn't sure about reading. I said, oh, I think you should still read it to, you know, have your own opinion of something. I think there are very few novels that I'd be like, eh, I don't think you should read that. It's not worth your time. <laughs> but I think, you know, people get different things out of out of novels. So I told her she should give it a shot. And so I, I told her right away she would recognize whether she's going to like it or not. I think this one you can kind of tell right at the beginning how it's going to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Opinion. So. yeah. Okie dokie. Well, that's right. it for this episode. It is. We do have some feedback, though. Finally, feedback yeah. that's been banking for five episodes? Yeah, sort of. Oh, We've okay. got two pieces of feedback. We've got some Facebook stuff by, from Robert Ward, and we have an email from Professor Allen. Um, I'm going to handle the Robert Ward thing. Stella will read the email from Professor Allen. And Robert Ward did share – he shared uh, he shared a bunch of links and things um, that were very helpful over on the Facebook page. For instance, there was a link to the Orson Welles adaptation of Les Miserables, which he said is a good abridged alternative to the 60 hours worth of audiobook. He added a link to a YouTube playlist of all 52 episodes of the anime version of Les Miserables. Oh. Um, he also had a comment regarding – yeah. And he also had a comment regarding – I, I did not either. There's so, one um, of uh, Count of Monte Cristo, and it was amazing. So I might have hmm. to look at this late miss. Yeah, so 52 episodes, and it's it's somewhere in um, – you just have to scroll down on my reading uh, cast page on Facebook, and I think you should be able to find it. So um, He also had a comment regarding The Hunger Games. He said, oh, the tears I wept when I finally finished The Hunger Games, despite wanting to abandon it from pretty early on. I felt s- such a sense of accomplishment. Why did he cry? Um, I don't know. Is he it didn't really go. Of what happened? Maybe I don't know. I would. I actually would ask him to uh, maybe email in to us and expand on that because I'm kind of maybe curious. Maybe he was to... sad that he actually spent time and read it. Maybe. Yeah. But no. It I, seemed I would... like he didn't want to read it. So. Yeah. So yeah. So so it, it, Robert, if you feel like it, email in on the Hunger Games a little bit more and and, and expand on that because I'm kind of curious because I can totally understand like over oh, the tears I wept when I finally finished Blame Is a Rob because <laughs> sure. I mean. Or, 
or Vanity Fair, sorry, uh, because uh, those are very, very long books. I mean, they are just tomes. Uh, Hunger Games is, you know, so uh, so. I, wonder, we, I think we're both made you a and then that you finally... Um, so I wanted I want Robert Ward to email us and maybe expanding on it and saying whether or not um, he liked the Hunger Games, what made him like wanting to abandon it um, because the other two are you know big big tomes and, and um, I could totally I think like I said I could totally understand why he would you know, why he would want to abandon either Les Miserables or uh, Vanity Fair <laughs> in the middle. Um, he responded in a couple of memes regarding Les Miserables. First, he said, I will say this so far. So I think he's making his way through the book and posting memes to Facebook for us. Uh, this may be the only book I will ever advocate abridging. And there's a grumpy cat meme of Les Miserables, more miserable. Uh, yeah. Then he says, while the Tom Valjean and Stella Javert comparison is on point, and there is a two guys sitting at a table, one hand, one is Valjean, the other one is Javert, and Valjean is handing Javert complex feelings, and Javert tosses it out. So I guess you are just tossing out my complex feelings. Do you have complex feelings? <laughs> I don't know if I have complex feelings. Uh. As of writing this, on the way out to work, I made it so that I now ha- only have 27 hours and 8 minutes left out of an audiobook that's 66 hours, 31 minutes, and 18 seconds long. This meme and others are I post are not mine, like the change my mind one. Um, there is one does not simply explain Les Mis. <laughs> He says, I love you too, but I really do have to make the joke. And he says, I'm listening to this episode, and there's the change my mind guy. And it says, Thomas, a jerk face for choosing such a long goddamn book. <laughs> well, I guess it's your turn to be the jerk face. <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> but that was that was meme the meme-tastic uh, Facebook post from Robert Ward. And we really, really appreciate them. Some of them really did make me, la- make me, uh, make me laugh. And so. I think Tom's at least promised to keep it short for the next episode I yes to oh think about it's what much I'm doing, much so. shorter yeah so you can at least be happy about that and then we have one final email from prof prof that cheapskate professor allen and it's about the hunger games he says stella and that fella she sometimes hangs out with I enjoyed your conversation about The Hunger Games. Both Em and I read the series when they came out and enjoyed them. We were previously fans of her prior Underland series featuring Gregor, so we were fans of Susan Collins' Hipsters, fans of her before it was cool to be fans of her. You two... Yeah, okay, I get you. So you two talked about the nature of YA books. What I like about them is that they can tell meaningful stories deep stories, but do it with less complex plotting and easier to understand language. As can be seen with Hunger Games, a plot with a simplified story structure can still be written very well and contain thought-provoking ideas. Take care. (laughs) Take care and keep up the good work, Stella, and Tom, keep trying. Professor Allen from the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network and Dorkness to Light. P.S., Looking forward to Les Mis. It's so cool that they did a novelization <laughs> of that musical. Yes. Uh, Isn't it nice that they adapted? Normally they adapt musicals from books, but they did yeah, the reverse. The reverse is yeah. true here. I know. Yep, yep, yep. <laughs> Thanks, Alan. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Yeah, remember you can always write into us, and we, we look forward to uh, reading your comments, even if they're hateful like Robert Ward. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay. Well, we've reached the end, and this is always the favorite, the the fun time where you just are wondering what's going to happen to you next. And for Robert, I guess he's really worried. So, Tom, what is the next book that we are going to be reading? Uh, I went. I just after two really really long novels, and a and a special. I wanted to go completely in the opposite direction. So I went graphic novel. Um, and not only did I go graphic novel, I went short graphic novel. And not only did I go short graphic novel, I went for the first time in 32 episodes, superhero graphic novel. I can't believe it. So we're going to step into the Marvel Universe. Okay. And we are going to read... God Loves, Man Kills, oh starring the Uncanny X-Men. Oh, my. Okay. All right. So, complex novel. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a slugfest. You know, it's not, uh, I don't know. Is that a pun? I was no, like, it's not, is no, he it's trying not a to pun. make it's, a reference to that No, pun? not actually. I just realized I wasn't trying to make a reference to that. It's not, it's not like, um, it's not like a, a, a beat-em-up uh, superhero no, it's story. Not. It's not like a big battle or anything, yeah. like Crisis on Infinite Earths or something like that. Um, but yeah, so I just I was I was just going through my shelves and I was like, oh, I haven't read this in a while, and I picked it up and I'm like, you know what, this could we could we could have a decent discussion about this. So yep, we sure can. Yep. So that'll be that'll be next that'll be next episode. Um, I believe that was that one of its the, first little like original graphic novels, right? In yeah, it was series. one of the it was one of the first standalone ones that Marvel did. I think it was mm-hmm. like their fourth or fifth one. I think their very first standalone novel was the. Death, Death of Captain Marvel, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, okay. Okay. And then, but it was like they used to number them, and this was like number. This was like Marvel graphic num- novel number like four or five or something. So it is. It's one of the okay. first. It's from like 1982 or something. Okay. Well, I own it, so I don't need to go to the library. Luckily. Yeah, I own it as well, and I think it's available in Comixology. I'm not sure, or the Marvel Unlimited app. I'm sure you could find it. Um, easily find Easy a reprint pizza. of it. Yes. Okay. Yes. Absolutely. So, but yeah. So there we go. Okay. Well, we're at an end. We made it. Yes, we did. What recommendations would you give to someone living in the world of Vanity Fair? <laughs> um, I don't know. <laughs> Just go reread Frankenstein. Uh, <laughs> oh, my. I would say if you meet someone named Becky Sharp, you need to ask for the money up front before you let her stay in any that's, of your that's places. Point. Yeah, <laughs> that's a very good point. <laughs> ask for the money first. Yes. All right. So um, we're not asking for any money, but we would like you to review us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter, which is Rec Reading Cast. That's R E Q Reading Cast. And as always, thank you very much for listening and take care. Yep. You be sure to take care. Is he mocking me with that? I really appreciate it. Oh, man. Okay. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? 
If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.